This is Muslim Footprints, an opportunity to deep dive into Muslim civilizations through the ages, accompanied by some of the best experts and academics in their field. My name is Aisha Dyer. Muslims governed for almost a thousand years in the Iberian Peninsula, with Arabo-Islamic culture leading the way in science and art, philosophy and theology. It's a period known for its ultra-cosmopolitanism, where Jews, Christians and Muslims lived and worked together in peaceful coexistence. Brian Katloss, Professor of Religious Studies at the University of Colorado, Boulder, is our guide to Muslim Spain. He's written a page-turner on the subject called Kingdoms of Faith. And I thought I would bring his lessons into the introduction in case they help us to frame how we listen to the story. The sort of capacity for tolerance and dialogue is not built in to any one cultural or religious tradition. When we can see these societies in which different people who came from different groups were able to interact in constructive ways, we should look at why that was the case and how that was the case. And the more that people feel that they are invested in a common project which overrides their particular ethnic or religious orientation, I think enables them to work together in a sort of constructive collaboration. The Christians and Jews who lived in Al-Andalus felt like they were part of that society. The Muslims who lived under Christian rule for many hundreds of years felt like they had a legitimate place in that Christian society. And this is important because I think that to the extent that we can talk about human progress and cultural uh, creativity, this happens in contexts where lots of different people are exchanging ideas. Every time, whether in the Christian world or the Muslim world, a political movement came in that wanted to stop that, that wanted to narrow things down, that wanted to get back to the sort of fundamentals and ignore or discount other cultures and other ideas, it leads to stagnation and inevitably to defeat. Let's start our whirlwind journey through Al-Andalus, which began in the 700s and lasted all the way through to the 1600s. This episode is divided into five parts. Part one, setting the scene. Let's start with the arrival of Islam onto the Iberian Peninsula in the early 700s. We can call it Spain, but of course, Spain didn't exist then. It was called Hispania. Could you paint a picture for us of what did exist and what was going on in it? First of all, we have to get away from this idea that uh, the conquerors were Muslims because many of the, of the people who came over were North African Berbers 
who had been very uh, recently uh, converted to Islam. And so, you know, it's sort of an open question as to how Muslim they were. So we have this force made up of a very small number of Arabs who originated, of course, in the Arabian Peninsula and had been part of this, uh, you know, incredible process of conquest that took place after the death of Muhammad during the period of the first four caliphs when uh, the Islamic world exploded and, and overran what had been the Persian Empire and overran much of what had been uh, the Roman Empire. And really the way people thought about the world was in terms of its empires, the Persian Empire and the Roman Empire. So certainly what the Arab Muslims, one of their ambitions was to you know, establish their sovereignty over both of these empires. And that was part of the impulse that brought these Muslim armies across North Africa to Spain. But a lot of it was just opportunity. The Western Roman Empire had come apart in the couple of centuries before the rise of Islam. And Spain was being ruled by the Visigoths, these Germanic people who had gradually conquered the territory. Officially, they're Catholic Christians, but that doesn't mean they're united. In fact, Hispania is in the middle of a civil war because someone called Roderick has been chosen as king and a lot of people didn't support him among the elite. So it was a divided kingdom. There's kind of a, a civil war brewing within Christian Spain at this time between uh, two rival factions contending uh, for who should be king. The person who was officially the king was this individual named Rodrigo or Roderick. And he was very unpopular with certain parts of the Visigothic nobility. So they were kind of trying to figure out a way to get rid of him. And this was exactly at which point the Arabs ended up on the shores of Western Morocco, looking out, you know, across the Straits of Gibraltar, and they could see Spain. The Berbers from North Africa were well aware of the weaknesses and the divisions within Christian Spain. And so there was a sort of complicity between members of the Christian forces and members of the Muslim forces. So right from the beginning, the Islamic conquest of Spain or the Arab conquest of Spain was not an Islamic conquest or an Arab conquest, but a process which involved all sorts of different players, both Christian and Muslim, with different agendas. So in 711, the Arab and Berber army, led by Tariq ibn Ziyad, crossed the Strait of Gibraltar from North Africa and took control of the south of the Iberian Peninsula. They managed to settle most of the territory with little difficulty. Generous surrender terms also meant there were more peaceful capitulations than violent battles, allowing Muslims to control most of what is now Portugal and Spain within just a few years. An interesting way to think about this or to look at this is to look at the stories that developed soon after about the invasion. You know, history is about people trying to make sense of the world and the things that happen in it. And they try to make sense of it on their own terms. So as both Christians and Muslims 
tried to come to grips with how this conquest of Spain happened, they came up with a story. And the story revolves around Julian. And Count Julian might have been a Byzantine governor. He might have been a a Visigothic governor or a Visigothic nobleman. Now, the story is that when Roderick, this Visigothic king, came to the throne, he asked for Count Julian to send his daughter to the Visigothic court to be educated. This is a pretty standard political thing. You invite children of your underlings to court, so that way you can control them. Well, as it happens, according to the story, uh, the daughter, of course, was very beautiful, and King Roderick and essentially had his way with her. Once Julian found out about this, his honor had been affronted, and so he began to plot revenge. And so the story goes that Count Julian agreed to take the Muslim and Berber invaders of Spain across the Straits of Gibraltar, because of course they had no ships, in order to get his revenge on King Roderick. It's kind of interesting because although the story is almost certainly false, what it does is it shows us that people were aware of the complexity of the situation and that this wasn't just a story of of Muslims versus Christians or Arab versus Spanish. And let's not forget that the name Gibraltar is derived from the original Arabic name Jabal Tariq, meaning Mountain of Tariq. So what were those first 100 years or 200 years like as Muslim rule slowly displaced Christian rule? At the beginning, when the Arabs came to Al-Andalus, there were very few of them. And so they governed as an isolated elite. And it was only gradually through, uh, through generations, exposure to Islam, that Spain began to convert into what we might call a Muslim majority country. At the same time, this was also a period in which Islamic society and culture was evolving. In this period, say between uh, 700 and 900, is when Islamic law coalesced, Islamic philosophy and science developed, Islamic theology became more sophisticated. And all of this was happening in the Eastern Islamic world. In, in and around Baghdad, in the Abbasid Caliphate. What happens around the year 800 or around the year 850 is that Baghdad and the Abbasid Caliphate goes through a tremendous political crisis. And that leads a lot of Muslims from the East to filter westwards through North Africa and to take up residence in Al-Andalus. So what we have by the year 900 is the implantation of this new Arabo-Islamic civilization that has developed in Abbasid Persia in Al-Andalus. And it's able to happen because it's precisely around this time that Al-Andalus is kind of coalescing as a political and economic power. So it can support this cultural movement that's been, uh, that's been going on in the East for so many centuries. Part two is the Golden Age. So, after the conquest of 711, Al-Andalus came together in this slow process of the consolidation of power. Fascinatingly, it happened under the Umayyads. The Umayyads were the first Muslim dynasty after the death of the Prophet Muhammad in 632, peace be upon him and his family. 
The Abbasids then overthrew the Umayyads in Damascus in around 750. Except one got away, Prince Abdul Rahman. His mother was a Berber from the mountains of Western Tunisia or Algeria. So he went there, regrouped a little bit, and then he crossed over to Al-Andalus and imposed himself on the allies of the Abbasids there and set himself up as the Amir of Al-Andalus. Why Amir? Because by this time, there's an idea in the Islamic world that there can only be one caliph, and that's in Baghdad. So he sets himself up as the prince of Al-Andalus, the Amir. And he's far enough away from the Abbasids that they can't really do anything. He's also aided in the early decades by the Christian elites that were there and who were part of this process. It was Abdul Rahman who established Cordoba as the capital of Al-Andalus. The Visigoth capital was at Toledo, so he moved it. And his sons built on his rule. And this culminated shortly after the year 900, when the emir of Al-Andalus, Abdul Rahman III, took the momentous step of presenting himself not as a mere uh, prince, but as actually the caliph of Islam. And this is really what we call this, this golden age of Al-Andalus. Abdul Rahman created this, uh, this incredibly powerful empire. He dominated all of Al-Andalus. He dominated the Christian lands of the north. He began the Umayyad conquest of North Africa. This conquest of North Africa plugged the Umayyads into these, these trade routes, which brought massive quantities of gold and other expensive uh, uh, commodities up into the Mediterranean and into Al-Andalus. So all of a sudden, Al-Andalus went from being this sort of very tenuous uh, provincial backwater to being essentially this, this, this superpower. And you now have what became known as the golden age of Muslim civilization across the Iberian Peninsula. Compared to much of Europe, Cordoba was not only the most sophisticated city on the continent, but one of the wealthiest cities in the world. It had paved streets lit with oil lamps, running hot and cold water, markets abundant with fresh produce, exquisitely designed bathhouses, stunning gardens with rivers and fountains flowing, and surrounded by well-cultivated farmland and orchards so it could also feed itself. Abdurrahman III was a keen historian and bibliophile, inviting scholars to his court and offering his patronage to the library of the royal palace, which by the 10th century may have contained some 400,000 books. Cordoba's intellectuals and literati soon included the Muslim poet Ibn Abdurrabihi, the Muslim physician Azarawi, the Jewish religious scholar Moses ben Enoch, the Muslim poetess Lubna of Cordoba, the rabbi and poet Dunash ben Larat, 
the Muslim astronomer and mathematician Maslama al-Majriti and the Muslim polymath and theologian Ibn Hazm. In addition, with Greek, Latin, Hebrew and Arabic all familiar to Cordoban intellectuals, classical texts and scholarship from other parts of the world were translated and analysed. Such was Cordoba's high reputation that Hroswither of Gandersheim, considered to be the first playwright since ancient times, referred to the city as the ornament of the world. Two things that often come to mind when thinking of Islamic Spain are poetry and science. What was their role in Andalusi culture? I think it's really difficult for us uh, today, particularly uh, those of us living in the Anglo-American world, to understand uh, the importance that, that, that poetry played in, uh, in medieval Islamic societies. Poetry was, uh, was many things. It was a uh, means of mass communication. It was the newspaper, uh, the Facebook of the day. It was, uh, it was a medium for uh, uh, creating and disseminating propaganda about rulers. It was considered at once uh, high art and low art. And what's interesting is that in Al-Andalus, as across the Islamic world, rulers were so interested and so invested in the culture of poetry that a poet, merely by gaining the ear of a prince or a king or a governor and writing poetry that exalted and was pleasing to that governor, could find himself suddenly elevated from the depths of obscurity and poverty uh, to a life of, of luxury within, within the palace. So it's hard to think of what might be a sort of a, a modern equivalent, but you know, I guess you could imagine if a pop star wrote a song uh, exalting the president and the president then decided to name this person to be, I don't know, secretary of state uh, as a result. This is the kind of uh, dynamic that we see happening in Al-Andalus. Poetry was seen as an ornament, an ornament and a sign of majesty and sophistication. And this was part of a general approach, not only to culture, but to science, to knowledge in general. There was an idea, and this was an idea that uh, ultimately came out of the Persian world, the idea that the universal ruler is someone who embodies an embracive uh, knowledge of everything. And so there's this notion that you have to learn everything and gather all the knowledge from across the world and incorporate it into your kingdom. And that is what gives you power. That is what gives you legitimacy. So the caliphs, the governors, members of the elite were all very interested in promoting science it was seen again as another aspect of their power and a projection of their legitimacy as rulers. And so as a consequence of all of this investment and all of this cultural affirmation, we have this tremendous elan and 
virtually every field that you can imagine from uh, poetry and literature and uh, grammar to, uh, to uh, medicine, uh, engineering, optics, agronomy, this explosion of knowledge and science that happens in Islamic Spain, more or less after the year 900 or so. Can you describe this sort of ultra-cosmopolitan environment where Christians, Muslims and Jews are interacting with each other? There were uh, Jews and Christians working in the administration of the caliphate. Uh, Jews and Christians by this time, by the time we get to the year 900, had completely uh, acculturated to the Arabo-Islamic world. Uh, they spoke Arabic. Uh, they, they dressed in the same styles and fashions as as, as Muslims in Al-Andalus. So there was this really strong integration. I think that Christians and Jews could feel like they were part of this project of constructing this caliphate. And part of the reason it was possible was because the rulers of Al-Andalus did not see Christians and Jews as a threat. Who did the rulers see as a threat? They saw as a threat fellow Muslims who dissented or would undermine their power. However, when Abdul Rahman III became caliph, in order to present himself as caliph, he sort of distanced himself and put himself above the people. In a way, the caliph became a victim of his own success. The bureaucracy was such a fine-tuned machine that Abdul Rahman could basically step back from it. And when his son, Al-Hakim, inherited the caliphate, he could also take a hands-off approach and dedicate himself to science and learning and reading, which are the things that he liked. But that's when an individual called Al-Mansur steps in. Al-Mansur got himself appointed as the Hajib, or Chamberlain. He's like the chief of staff to a CEO. And he broke the caliphate. So it's really the most powerful position in the kingdom. Because if you can't get past the Hajib, then how do you even contact the caliph? So Al-Mansur, over a process of 10 or 15 years, consolidates his power, eliminates his various rivals within the administration, and essentially sets himself up as the ruler of Al-Andalus. He embarks on a series of, uh, of policies in order to consolidate his power. He brings in tons of Berber mercenaries from North Africa so that he has a, an army loyal to him. He cultivates the religious elite. He kind of plays off to the religious right. He begins to purge the libraries of, of, of books that the religious elite objects to in order to consolidate his, his, his standing among them. He embarks on a series of raids against Christian lands, two per year for almost 25 years. When he dies, he passes his position as Hajib onto his son. One of his sons, Sanjul, takes the position of Hajib but decides that he wants to be more than that. That's Sanchuelo, by the way, whose mother was a converted Christian named Abda. 
She was daughter of Sancho II of Pampelona. Her son was nicknamed Sanjul, the diminutive of Sancho, after his Christian grandfather. He wants to be caliph himself. And when this son, Sanjul, claims the caliphate, this is what sparks the civil war that brings everything down to a crashing halt. the Taifa kingdoms. So now we're in the period after the fall of the Caliphate. And what happens next? People lament this tragedy, but actually you see, in fact, the blossoming of Islamic culture, as there were 12 capital cities instead of one. There was this abundance of creativity Tell us how this was possible. So we had the situation where around the year 1000, the, the caliphate of, uh, of Cordoba seemed to be at the height of its power. And as a consequence of uh, this power struggle within the caliphate and, and this declaration by al-Mansur's son that he would be the new caliph, this sort of... Uh, uh, unleashes all of the all of the latent tensions that had been building up within the caliph tensions between uh, uh, Arabs and uh, local Muslims tensions between uh, local Muslims and Berbers tensions between uh, the pious elite members of the ulama and members of the a court circle so al-andalus essentially fractures. The central government disappears and every provincial capital now becomes essentially the capital of its own little kingdom. This is also a point where the Christian kingdoms in the north are starting to take advantage of this weakening of Islamic Spain and they're starting to put pressure on the Muslim kingdoms. But curiously, the Muslim kingdoms don't unite against the Christian threat Instead, they focus on competing with each other. They fight each other, but they also compete with each other culturally. Because this idea still remains that in order to be a legitimate ruler, you have to project power. And power is projected through knowledge and culture. So each of these little kingdoms becomes a kind of cultural hothouse. They are able to do this because even though they're in political disarray, the economy of Al-Andalus is so strong that it can keep going. It can support this conflict, even as the Christian kings begin encroaching more and more upon Andalusi territory. Who are some of the most colorful or notable figures of this era? Well, this is actually one of my favorite eras of all of Al-Andalus. So you have a whole sort of a collection of figures who are circulating in the Iberian Peninsula in this pivot point between the collapse of the caliphate and the arrival of the Almoravids and the Christian conquests. Some of my favorites are, are Al-Mutamid, 
who was uh, Al-Mutamid ibn Abad. He was the, he was the king of, of Seville, one of the most powerful taifa kingdoms. He was one of the highest regarded poets of contemporary Al-Andalus. And one of the individuals who, who really uh, uh, plagued him throughout his, throughout his career was uh, another poet named Muhammad ibn Amr. Muhammad ibn Amr, he came from some obscure, poor background, and somehow he ingratiated himself with the father of al-Mutamid. And when al-Mutamid, as a young man, was sent off to be a provincial governor to train him to eventually be king, Muhammad ibn Amr went with him. And apparently, they started a love affair. And this became such a scandal that eventually Al-Mutamid's father had Muhammad ibn Amr sent into exile. One of the more interesting anecdotes is that uh, it was through Muhammad ibn Amr that Al-Mutamid uh, met his wife. One day, uh, back when they were uh, living in that little provincial town, Muhammad ibn Amr and Al-Mutamid were walking along a canal. And just to pass the time, they were kind of extemporating poetry to each other, sort of freestyling poetry back and forth to each other. And all of a sudden, Muhammad was about to answer, and this voice interrupts and says some poetry, extemporates some poetry, which fits in with what they were doing. And he looks around, and it's it's a woman who's washing clothes by the river. And this is Itamad al-Rukmaniya. And he ends up falling in love with her and marrying her. And they end up married their entire lives. And eventually, when al-Mutamid is eventually overthrown by the by the Almoravids, these Berbers who come in and they take over al-Andalus, you know, sort of, they're not very conducive to poetry, they take him off into exile, Itamad goes with him. And so they have this, this sort of, this love story. But there are so many interesting figures. We have someone like El Cid, El Cid, who's known, famous for being this sort of proto-crusader, this, you know, Christian warrior. In fact, he spent most of his career fighting in the armies of Muslim kings against Christian kings. He was a great hero among the Muslims of the peninsula. Or we get someone like Walada bint al-Mustakfi. She was the daughter of one of the last contenders to the Umayyad Caliphate of Al-Andalus. And she was a wealthy woman who set herself up as sort of a, a literary patroness. And she wrote all sorts of poetry, really, really explicit, erotic poetry addressed to her multitude of lovers, often, you know, putting them down in the most crude terms kind of thing. So it's not what we necessarily think about when we get our image of golden age Islamic Spain. It was this, this messy world that was full of possibilities, a world in which someone like Ismail ibn Nagrilla, who was a Jew, could find himself essentially in all but name the ruler of a Muslim kingdom. Imagine a Jew leading Muslim armies out into battle against other Muslim armies. And, you know, what is incredible is that people saw that as something that was not abnormal and as something that was acceptable. So it's a really fascinating and rich period in which on the one hand, we think of it as this period 
as a clash between Christianity and Islam, but what we see is in fact Christianity, Judaism, and Islam are deeply intertwined with each other. In 2019, the Aga Khan, the 49th hereditary imam or spiritual leader of the Ismailis, whose followers refer to him as Molana Hazar Imam, delivered a speech at the inaugural Aga Khan Music Awards in Lisbon, in which he noted the creativity and pluralism of Al-Andalus. I learned at a young age how my own ancestors, the Fatimids, cultivated music in the city of Cairo a thousand years ago. And I also learned about how the Iberian region, where we are now meeting, the, t- the territory known as Al-Andalus, produced new forms of music and poetry in the late medieval period. It was here, in Al-Andalus, that Muslims, Jews, Christians, created together an exemplary culture of tolerance fostering musical creativity that even included new types of musical instruments and pioneering approaches to to music education. Muwasha is a poetic form that originated in Andalusia during the 10th century. It comes from the word wusha, which literally means a scarf adorned with ornaments. The poems of the Muwasha abandon the strict rhymes of Arabic poetry and instead follow colourful rhythms decorated with melodic ornamentation. Here is an example of a famous one, Lamma Badda Yatathanna, sung by the Syrian-Armenian Lina Chamamian. Part 4, The End of the Taifa Kingdoms So, the Taifa Kingdoms come to a close at 1100. Was that the end of Arab al-Andalus? Well, it wasn't the end of Arab al-Andalus, but what it was was the end of that very particular Andalusi culture that we associate with this golden age of the Umayyads. It was the end of the caliphate. It was the end to a great extent, of the culture of court poetry, of science, and of many intellectual and cultural pursuits that had previously 
uh, defined and characterized Al-Andalus. The people who ruled over Al-Andalus after the year 1100 were either Christians who had different priorities and ideas, and Christians were very interested in science as well. And there was this movement of Christian kings to incorporate uh, Islamic science. And this is how uh, we had all of these works of of science and technology that were produced in the Islamic world and philosophy translated into Latin, for example. And the other groups who were coming from the South, these these Berber movements, the Almoravids and the Almohads, they had different priorities in terms of how they saw the world working. So in many ways, the end of the Taifa kingdoms was the end of the Sarab al-Andalus. This is the way that historians have constructed the great narratives of Islamic Spain. But it wasn't the end. Around 1300, after a long period of upheaval and invasion, a new ruling dynasty coalesces in the south. And this is the Nasrid dynasty. So this was an entirely new kingdom of Granada that was founded by uh, a member of, a, of, a, of an aristocratic Arab lineage that had been in Andalus for hundreds of years. As... As the Taifa kingdoms were collapsing and as Al-Andalus was descending into chaos, what we had was a a whole collection of Muslim warlords who were basically doing anything they could to to carve out their own little territory, right? And a lot of these uh, Muslim warlords would actually ally with the Christians against other Muslim warlords. And so the process of, uh, of the Christian conquest of Al-Andalus was something that Muslims were very deeply involved in, just as many Christians had been involved in the Muslim conquest of Al-Andalus back in 711. So this warrior, whose name is Ibn Hud, who's circulating in the early 1200s and gathers an army and becomes a, a kind of client of the kings of Castile, manages to stake out his own little kingdom in Granada, the very south of the peninsula. And he manages to uh, impose himself on this area, and his family is able to continue ruling for almost 300 years until 1492, when they're finally overthrown. But before that, we've got some stories about Nasserid queens. History, as it's been written, tends to portray the world and its events as something that men do. But what historians have often lost sight of is the tremendous uh, power that, that, that women have. And the Nasrid kingdom of Granada is a good example of this. In particular, there is one figure, her name is Fatima bint Muhammad bint al-Ahmar, and she was the granddaughter of the founder of the Nasrid dynasty. And you might say she was a woman and you know therefore what power could she could she could she exercise well what we have to remember is that uh in the islamic world women they were allowed to own property independent of their husbands so if a woman accrued wealth it was hers to spend and women in the aristocracy accrued a lot of wealth either through inheritance through marriage or through gifts they were given by powerful men in their families. And so women who were able to amass, for example, 
properties and estates and business interests and so on and so forth could use the profits of those businesses for their own purposes. And what they did was they was that they constructed informal but powerful political networks that helped to move things behind the scenes. So someone like Fatima uh, bint al-Ahmar, this queen of Nasrid Granada, was really the one who for, you know, over 50 years managed to hold the dynasty together through a succession of, of upheavals and conflicts within the family. So I think it's, it's really important not to lose sight of how uh, powerful women were in this, in this history, both as patrons of culture, sometimes as, as uh, poets and as intellectuals themselves, but really uh, a powerful presence behind the scenes kind of holding things together. And who was it who built the Alhambra? Well, the original Alhambra Palace was built during the Taifa period, and it was built by uh, by the Jewish wazirs uh, Samuel and Yusuf ben Negrella as their palace. Uh, at that time, the the Muslim kings of Granada had their palace in a different in a different part of the city. So, when the Taifa Kingdom of Granada disappeared, things kind of uh, went to pot, as it were, for a few centuries. And when Muhammad ibn Hud created the Nasrid dynasty. He established the Alhamra as the sort of seat of his power. But the Alhamra that we see today wasn't really built until about a century later. It was in the 1350s that the, that the Alhamra that we see today was constructed. And it's really interesting because it was constructed as this sort of uh, manifestation of Arabo-Islamic culture and power, you know, it's uh, uh, these sort of incredibly intricate uh, stucco decor. But what's interesting is that reflects a kind of aesthetic that was embraced by Christians as well at this time. Even though Al-Andalus had become politically weak uh, in comparison to the Christian kingdoms that were gaining territory in the in the 1200s and 1300s, Islamic culture was still representing a sort of ideal of creativity and sophistication that Christians wanted to aspire to. So, for example, at the same time that the Alhambra Palace was built, we have a whole series of palaces built in basically the same style, but these were built within Christian Spain. Christian kings and Christian nobility wanted to emulate the the power and sophistication that was inherent in, uh, in Andalusi culture. The best example is uh, in Seville, which is you know, not far from Granada. There's the, uh, the fortified palace, it's called the Alcazar, right from the Arabic Alcazar, of, uh, which was built mostly under the rule of the, uh, of the King Pedro the Cruel in the 1350s. And it's funny because you might think that Pedro the Cruel's uh, Alcazar is an imitation of the Alhambra. I mean, you walk into the uh, to the Alcazar in Seville, and you could think you're in the Alhambra. You know, same stucco decoration, the same inscriptions in Arabic. Well, the inscriptions are a little bit different, 
but the walls are all inscribed with uh, with Arabic calligraphy, praising the king, praising God in very neutral terms that you could read it as a as a, as a Christian or a Muslim and find it acceptable. So people think of the Alcathar as an imitation of the Alhambra, but in fact the Alcathar was built a few years before the Alhambra. <laughs> so so it's a case of uh, Christians imitating Muslims but then being imitated by Muslims who are imitating the Christians imitating Muslims. But this is the way culture works, right? It's all about appropriating ideas and the circulation uh, of ideas within different, uh, different groups. Part five, the end. Did we talk about how Al-Andalus comes to an end? Well, we, we haven't yet, but let's, let's do that. So what is the end of Al-Andalus? Well, normally, again, uh, most histories will point to the year 1492. Uh, the so-called Catholic kings, King Fernando of Aragon, King Isabel, uh, Queen Isabel of Castile, because they were, they were married, it meant that there was peace between the two major Christian kingdoms in the Iberian Peninsula. And this was bad news for the Muslims of Granada, because basically Granada had been able to survive for the previous couple hundred years by, by playing the different Christian powers off against each other. Once the Christian powers were basically united under the same ruling couple, then the jig was up. And so Ferdinand and Isabella, using a combination of military force and political manipulation to exploit the divisions between the Nasrid kingdom, end up finally establishing a siege around the city of Granada. Right? And this is going to be the formal end of Al-Andalus. What happens as a consequence, the last sultan of Granada uh, Abu Abdullah Abu Abdul surrenders. He gives the keys of the city, as it were, to the Catholic kings. But is this the end of Islamic Spain? Uh, there's no more independent Islamic kingdoms in Spain, but this is not the end of Islamic Spain because Spain is still inhabited. It has an enormous uh, population of Muslims, both in Granada at the time of the conquest, but also across the peninsula. Over the previous 400 years or so, as the Christian kings conquered uh, Muslim territory in Al-Andalus, generally speaking, in most cases, they did not expel the Muslims who were there. They did not force them to convert to Christianity, which would have been impossible. What they did instead was they invited them uh, to stay as subjects of Christian kings. Under the rule of Ferdinand and Isabella, however, Muslims and Jews were subject to a mass inquisition. Those discovered to be practicing their own religion were either required to convert to Christianity or faced expulsion from the Iberian Peninsula. While it was possible for Arabs and Berbers to leave and go to their relatives in North Africa, this was not possible for Mu'allads, those who were native-born. Their origins were in the Iberian Peninsula, and their forefathers had converted to Islam many centuries before. 
These and others who stayed, who were called Moriscos, were later accused of continuing to practice Islam after being forced to convert to Christianity. The Spanish Inquisition was set up to expose such people and to get them to confess, often under great torture. So they essentially forced uh, the Muslims of Spain to convert to Christianity. Now, what happens when someone forces you to convert to something? Well, you know, obviously you're not necessarily going to convert. And so this opens a new phase in the history of Islam in Spain, which is the era of the Moriscos. The Moriscos are uh, formally Christians because they've been uh, forced to convert to Christianity. But many of them, or most of them, continue uh, to secretly practice Islam. This is a situation which is able to to last about another hundred years, at which point the Christian rulers have decided that these Moriscos, these Muslims, are no longer really necessary. You know, the reason why the Christian kings had incorporated Muslims into their kingdom was not because they were, you know, wasn't some idea of tolerance. They needed them. Right? They needed them. They needed their, their, the economic contribution they made. By the time we get to the 1500s, uh, Spain has been transformed. Spain doesn't need a Muslim population anymore. Spain is getting its money from its overseas colonies, all the silver and gold that's coming in from the New World. And so in this moment, the Christian rulers of Spain, with the, you know, the, the influence of the church, are able to say, look, uh, you know, these people, uh, these Moriscos, uh, they present themselves as Christians, but too many of them are secret Muslims. And so we're just going to get rid of them. And so between 1609 and 1614, uh, all of the Moriscos of Spain, all of the uh, descendants of the Muslims of Spain who were still in Spain were forced to leave. And they were sent into exile, most of them to uh, to North Africa. It was a... a, a a movement of population that involved, you know, probably around 350,000 people in the space of, of a few years. And this was really what marked the sort of the, the end of, of, of Islamic Spain. This is a really interesting moment, I think, in, in the history of the West and in the history of Europe. Prior to 1500, the way that people thought of society being organized was according to religion. We have something changing around the year 1500, and there's many reasons for this change. Some of them are cultural processes that are happening within Europe. Some of them are related to uh, the expansion into the so-called New World, into the Americas, the European beginning of the European colonization of Africa, of Asia. But there's a transformation when people start thinking of religion not as what you believe, but what you are. And the sense that people who belong to different religions, Christians, Muslims, and Jews, don't only believe different things, but in some way they're inherently different. 
maybe even physiologically different. And this is what sort of gives rise to uh, the concept of, of race, which becomes increasingly important as a way of organizing and thinking about society after 1500. So I think the expulsion of the Moriscos really happens at this, at this turning point, when the way that people think about their identity and about the way that society is shaped goes from being one that is based on religion to one that's being based on race. Because when they threw out the Moriscos from Spain, the Moriscos were all Christian. So there was no religious reason to do it. There was no religious justification for exiling all of these Christians, particularly because they were sent mostly to Muslim lands. But if you think about it in terms of race, then it does make sense. But presumably, also in terms of race, they would have all come from the same stock. Oh, absolutely. In terms of in terms of, of of real terms, they were they were they were indistinguishable. And in fact, the Muslims of Spain were the same were the descendants of the people who had earlier been Christians in Spain before the Arab conquest. Right? There was no sort of mass movement of people. Spain wasn't colonized uh, by by Arabs. Very few Arabs arrived in Spain. It was a process of cultural uh, conversion. So, you know, people didn't look any different. People didn't necessarily sound any different. And this sort of underlies part of the tragedy of it, because these Moriscos who were exiled, some of whom were genuinely believing Christians, others who were secret Muslims, really felt themselves to be at home in Spain. They considered themselves to be, to be Spaniards, and they had good relations with their Christian neighbors. Muslim Footprints is developed and produced by Kalima Communications in partnership with The Ismaili. Our theme tune is Mola Mama Jan, performed by Black Heat. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share it with your friends. My name is Aisha Daya and you've been listening to Muslim Footprints. <laughs>